Uh, you see, it's not complicated. Uh, this is the series that we're in right now. Pastor Eric started this series last week, and I'm going to continue today. He'll be back with us next week to continue on uh, in this series about those things in life that are not so complicated. Uh, maybe you've discovered, as I have along the way, that some of the most profound truths in life are really pretty simple in some ways. And for me, I know that I have found myself at a place where I've been frustrated at times because I've learned something and thought, why didn't I already know that? How, how could something so simple have eluded me? How could I have just missed that along the way? One morning several years ago, I was at the YMCA over in Indian River, and I'd been working out, and I stopped by the scales on the way to the locker room, and when I got on them, I, was, I just you know, was disappointed with what I saw. And one of the workers came by, and she said, how are you today? And I said, well, I'm frustrated. And she said, why are you frustrated? I said, the scales. I, I said, I, I've, I've been here working out three or four times a week. And I'm just getting nowhere. I mean, I'm making no difference. She said, let me help you. She said, it's your diet. And I said, what do you mean? She said, you know, maybe you didn't understand this, but you can only affect your weight by 10 to maybe 15% through exercise. 85 to 90% of weight loss is diet. I was like, really? Didn't know that. Honestly, the thought went through my head. I have an earned master's degree, and I had no idea. Now, it was not in that field of study, but I was kind of shocked to learn that. That was a real helpful encounter because that lady was honest with me, and I needed someone at the moment to be honest with me. I needed someone to teach me some things that I did not already know. That put me on a path to heading to another place. I ended up at Weight Watchers, and uh, I, I was actually there yesterday, weighed in, me and the girls. It was great. It was wonderful. I, it's, it's the most female-dominated organization on the planet, I got to tell you, but it was great. Um, I, I, I got there, and, and what I learned in that process was that there were some things that I needed to know if I was going to make a difference in my life regarding weight, and it wasn't all happening through exercise. I needed someone to be honest with me and someone who could teach me some things that would be helpful for me along that journey. Now, it's not complicated. What's not complicated? Well, the good news for you is we're not talking about weight loss this morning, okay? That's not the sermon, so just, you can, okay, good, we're not talking about that, but we are talking about money and stuff and possessions and giving. You see, as we look to God's Word, one of the things that we are blessed with is that God did not leave us without instruction in this area of giving and about money and stuff. Now, I'm going to be honest with you today, just like that lady was honest with me and helped me know some things that I needed to know. And I want to share with you three truths that I believe all of us need to take away with us today and four action steps that every one of us do already with our money and our stuff. And we're going to look at the order of those and why that matters and what's important about that. So if you've got your Bible with you, open it to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now, there, there's much in the Bible about money and stuff and giving. More than 2,500 verses of Scripture uh, address this subject. Over 700 in the New Testament, Jesus had more to say about giving and about money and possessions than he did about heaven and hell combined. Some people might wonder, well, why? Is money that important to Jesus? Really, it's not. You see, Jesus recognized what an important thing money and stuff would be to us. He recognized what a hurdle and what a barrier it would be in our lives to be able to really overcome and to, to get a grip on. Jesus had a lot to say about that along the way. There was a man that came to Jesus one day and he said, uh, Master, what is the greatest commandment? 
And Jesus said to him simply, it is this, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You see, Jesus recognized and taught him that the two priorities we should have in our life were loving God and loving others. And then the other things that Jesus had to say about money and stuff was that we should use stuff for kingdom purposes. Jesus knew that we would have a great temptation to love stuff and to use people and God to get more stuff. You see, having stuff can not always be just an enormous blessing. It can end up being kind of a burden that we drag along through life with us if we don't get it in the right place and if we don't get it in the right order. So today, I, I want to spend some time with you and looking at this uh, issue if it's not complicated by looking at some things the Bible has to say about money. Now, there's a whole lot there. And I'm resisting the urge to give you the whole load, okay? Because there's lots and lots and lots there. So I tried, I worked this week and prayed and sought the Lord for where, where, where do we go? And we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17, 18, and 19. Three verses that I settled on there. Three truths. You can go ahead and write these down, if you will. Three truths I think we need to know if we're going to effectively manage what God has given to us. The first of those is that we need to know who we are. We must know who we are. We need to know who we serve. The last thing we need to know is we need to know what God desires. And in this text, I think we'll be able to see all three of those items along the way. Let's begin with just the reading of the text. Well, before I do that, let me just say to you, 1 Timothy is a book written by the Apostle Paul, who's a church planter, a first century missionary. He wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about two-thirds of the New Testament. And he had Timothy, his young companion was with him. He left Timothy in Ephesus to serve as pastor of this congregation. So it's a letter to a young pastor about pastoring a young congregation and some things that he would need to know to be effective in his ministry. And so Paul gives him specific instructions about a number of different groups of people throughout the uh, book of 1 Timothy. When we get to verse 17, he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the age to come, so that they may take hold of life that is real. Well, when I read this text, it begs the question for me that we've got to define some words. Who are the rich? Now, in this case, the Apostle Paul had addressed several different groups. Earlier in the chapter, he addressed some things he needs to say and teach to those who are of the very poor in the church. And then he addresses some things about those who have a desire to be rich. And then he addresses the rich. Clearly there were some people in the church that Paul was saying, you really got to say some things directly to these people. But you may want to write this definition down because this was helpful for me in, in making sure that I was clear on who are the rich. And this is an American definition. I believe that in our culture, we're struggling with identifying that. We're, we're a nation that is rifled with $17 trillion of indebtedness as a nation. And we're looking for ways to resolve that and get out of that. And so there's this mindset and this class warfare in our culture today that says we need to tax the rich. They need to pay their fair share. If the rich would just pay their fair share, we wouldn't have these problems. And so we have to define who are the rich. I believe in America the rich are defined as, write this down, somebody else. Okay? Somebody else. Now that's what we normally mean because in our minds, 
we are quick to understand that we're not the rich, but it's somewhere out there, this imaginary group of people that are these rich, 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 rich people because, why? Because I'm comparing myself to other people that have more stuff, bigger stuff, shinier stuff, newer stuff than I do. But in this passage of Scripture, Paul says to Timothy, instruct the rich. I think we need to know who we are, and I got to say to you, being honest with you today, telling you the truth, the vast majority of us fall in this category. Why do you say that? Well, I, not by American standards, I know. By American standards, we got thresholds of where the poverty level is and where middle class and, and where, where wealthy and all those things are. But if you take a Google Earth view and you kind of back up a little bit <clears throat> and you begin to look at the planet with all seven billion of us that inhabit the planet, I'm grateful to be a part of a church that's passionate about taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far ends of the earth. This summer, my youngest son Samuel had the opportunity to go with Ray Smith and a group of folks from our church to be able to go to Malawi, Africa. And in Malawi, one of the things I was so grateful that he had the opportunity to encounter was a group of people that represent 50% of the population of this earth. Three and a half billion people that live on this earth live on less than the equivalent of two U.S. dollars a day. Wow. We can hardly fathom that. That's a little overwhelming for us to think about. How would you live on two dollars a day? But am I right, Ray? Is that true? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so when we just look at other, other pictures, if we look at just income levels, if you make $25,000 a year, $25,000 a year in annual income, you make more than 90% of the people in the world. Wow. If you make over $50,000 a year, you are in the 99 percentile of income earners on the planet. Okay? I just learned this in reading Rich Stern's book, A Hole in Our Gospel, that 93% of the people on the planet do not own an automobile. Wow, who knew? Sounds like there's a great market out there for somebody. There's a 93% market share out there still to be had for automobiles. See, that, that puts us in a different place. Now, I realize that the Apostle Paul was talking to a first century church, telling Timothy, you tell the rich people in the church this. And again, the church probably was started with some very poor, well, we know it was started with some very poor people. By this time, there are, certainly have been more wealthy people that had come to know Christ that were a part of the church, and clearly he was instructing them. But I gotta say to you, that when we look at the church worldwide, this message today is for every one of us. At some point, we need to look at ourselves and say, I am rich, certainly rich in the sense of kingdom things. We are blessed people. But that doesn't mean we don't have struggles, okay? So I, don't, don't turn me off by thinking, well, you're crazy if you think I'm rich, okay? Again, compared to the world standards, we don't live in a lot of the rest of the world. We live right here, and I know what it costs us to live here. Now, my point is this, we are blessed, and we need to recognize our blessing. If you decide, well, look, I am not among the rich. Again, you're not discounted from all the rest of this message, okay? Certainly, knowing who we are, we are recipients. James 1.17 says that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. You realize everything that you have comes to you as a gift from God? Now, some people may be quick to say, well, now, wait a minute. You know, I, look, I earned this. I bought this. This is mine. And I would just ask you to take a few steps back and look and say, how did you earn the money to buy that? How did you get your job? How did you learn the things that you learned to be able to get that job? How did you get the skills that you needed to be able to do that job? 
Well, if you can't answer all of those, just go back to how did you get the breath that you breathe and the life that you have and the health that you have to be able to work to earn a living? Got to tell you, those come straight from the hand of God to you. We're recipients. And in addition to knowing who we are as rich or as recipients, we are also stewards. All the way back in the garden, when God had created everything that was, he said to Adam that he was to take dominion of this earth, of this world, to rule over it, to be a steward of it, to be in charge of it, to care for it. Jesus was notorious for telling stories that also paralleled this idea of stewardship, helping us to understand that God is the owner of all that is, and he lends to us and he gives to us so that we might be entrusted with that care. Do you remember the story about the the parable of the talents? Jesus said to one, he gave one, to one he gave two, to one he gave five. And then there was this day of accounting and reckoning to say, what did you do with the one that I gave you or the two that I gave you or the five that I gave you? Because those individuals did not own those talents. They were the keepers, the holders, the managers of those talents. And it's important for us if we're going to manage what God has given us to understand who we are. And we are his stewards. One young boy was asked, what is stewardship? And he said, well, it's like a cargo ship that God has loaded with all kinds of goods. And I am the captain of that ship. And God holds me responsible for the distribution of those goods. That's a pretty good definition. That's a good way of looking at that. Can I just tell you, Jesus knew that we would have a struggle with all of this stuff, though. And there would be a battle. It would compete for our allegiance and who is really first in our life. Which leads us to the second point. We need to know uh, who we are, but we also need to know who we serve. Look back at this text in uh, chapter 1, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. Just a reminder um, that what he was saying to them was that it's easy for people with great wealth to be able to depend on that and forget to depend on God. He said, don't do that. Help them know not to do that, to set their hope in God because he richly provides all things for us to enjoy. Another little side note here. God's not against wealth. God is not against you prospering or against you doing well. What he does want you to do, though, is to understand that as you prosper, you have done so in order to be able to be generous and to be able to be a blessing to other people around you. Not for you just to hoard up and keep and store up stuff all for yourself, That's not the reason for us to have these things. It's that he's given those things to enjoy, not given us those things to be stored. But look at the next verse. He says, instruct them to do good. Excuse me, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the age to come so that they may take hold of life that is real. Did you see that? We're called to serve God. He says, instruct them to do good, to to be rich in good works. Work for work is a work that is also used in serving. And we're to use, what he's saying here for for these that are wealthy, he's saying you need to use the resources God has given you. You need to begin to use those to serve in kingdom purposes. This begs another question. Then we have to answer another question. What is a servant? What is a servant? Well, a servant is someone who does what his master says. 
Again, Jesus, knew, knowing what a temptation and struggle we would have with this, spoke about this. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus said, No man, no man, no man can serve two masters. He's going to hate one, love the other if he does that. He says, For you cannot serve both God and mammon. It's a Greek word. It means money, material wealth, possessions, all of those same things. And so the instruction we have here from the Lord is to say that we are to serve. We are to do good. We are to be rich in good works. We're to be generous. We're to be givers. So we hear that, and we're quick to say, if someone says, who are you serving? As followers of Christ, we'd say, I'm serving God. We have to evaluate that. Am I serving God? Well, what does a servant do? What his master says? God says that we're to be rich in good works, and we're to be giving but we sometimes find ourselves in a dilemma because we hear that and yet we, we look at our checkbook and we're thinking, that's going to be tough to do. I don't think I can pull that off. We hear God say, give, 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 and then we hear Visa or MasterCard say, pay, pay, pay. What are we going to do? I can tell you what we're going to do. We're going to pay, pay, pay. Why? Because if we don't pay, 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 somebody's coming to get our stuff, stuff, stuff. It's true. You see, we have obligated ourselves, many of us have obligated ourselves in situations and circumstances where we don't have the option to be obedient to God. Have your Bible, look at Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7. This is an amazing passage of Scripture where Solomon is teaching his sons about all kinds of things in life, and he's teaching them about uh, prosperity and about wealth and about riches, and he says to them, you've got to know this, the rich rule over the poor. Is that true? Yes, just, that's true, okay? And the borrower is servant to the lender. Hmm. The borrower is servant or the borrower is slave, your translation may say, to the lender. Remember, we're against slavery. We already settled that 130, 40, 50 years ago. So we're against slavery, but this passage of Scripture says we can set ourselves up to become a servant to those that we borrow from. Boy, that's an interesting idea. Now, Jesus said we can only serve one master or the other, and then when we get to this place where we say, but God, I can't, I can't do that. I can't give. What we're saying is I'm not in a position to be obedient to you as my master. I'm saying you're my master, and you're telling me to do something, but I'm telling you that I can't be obedient. Why? Because I have enslaved myself to another master that says you got to do this. Or I'm coming. Now, that whole thing reminds us that there is a system for even how that works uh, in that whole indebtedness thing. You realize that if you borrow uh, $10,000 that the bank or the credit card company or whatever does not say to you, you know what, just whenever you get around to it, you can pay that back. Okay? No. The first of the month or the fifth of the month or the tenth of the month or whatever day of the month you've set it up on, they expect there to be a minimum payment Every, every month. And if you don't, you know what they're going to do? Charge you more, okay? We're going to charge you a late fee here. And then if you don't pay again, they're also going to say, ultimately, we're going to take you to court. And then you can pay the court cost on top of that or collections fee on top of that. So that means that we're, we've signed ourselves up for something that we're presuming on the future. And we're trusting somehow that in the future, I'm going to be better off. In the future, I'm going to have more money, and I will eventually be able to pay all of this off and get out of this. Well, with that being said, let's look at what I believe really ends up being 
uh, kind of the focus of uh, how it is that we live. Most of us get a paycheck. If you're working, you get a paycheck once a week, twice a month, once a month, occasionally if you're on commission. And by and large, you can't see over there, I'll give you that. First step that we normally take is that we want to spend. We're going to go spend that money. And the way we spend that money is one of three ways. We either spend it on paying down debt. I've obligated myself to this. I've got to get out of this, so I've got to pay this bill. Pay taxes. Well, again, there's a system for that, too, you know. The government figured out a long time ago they shouldn't wait on you to pay your taxes once a year. If we just took it out a little bit every week or every couple of weeks, then we'll have an accounting day on April the 15th, and you can figure out if you've paid in too much or you haven't paid enough. Okay, but we're gonna, there's a system for getting that as well. So we spend in one of those three ways. We're paying down debt, paying our taxes, or then we're buying the stuff that we do life with, okay? Stuff that we use. If there's anything left, we move to saving. We put some aside because we realize that there, there probably are going to be some things down the road that we're going to need, and we begin to try to set some aside for that. That's a good thing to do. Now, you realize that for Americans right now, we are spending on average 102% of our income, which means we have a negative savings rate, not saving anything, but for those that are saving, often it's all gone there, and then there is precious little left to do this with, to give. Well, uh, along those lines, certainly there are people that are give, giving, but their giving comes in this interesting order because they start with this, move to this, and then give, and this is what I would call leftovers. Uh, there's nothing wrong when you're going to uh, dinner at your own house for having leftovers. If you've eaten a meal the day before, a couple days before, that's a good thing, okay? But when it comes to thinking about our relationship with God, I'm not sure that giving God our leftovers is the best plan. The last step becomes prayer. I think the prayer part becomes this picture of saying, God, I need to get to the end of this month or get back to the first of the month so I can get that paycheck. God, help me just stretch things and be able to survive until I can get back again. And this becomes this continuing cycle in people's lives. I've got to ask you a question. Is this a picture that you would call peace? I would call this financial stress instead. Because the order of this matters. When I was, uh, I don't know, fourth, fifth grade, I used to enjoy watching the Price is Right during the summer. I don't know why I like that show, but it was always fun to watch. And um, there was a game called Switcheroo uh, that they played. And, and that game was, went like this. Um, they were given a series of numbers. The player was given a series of numbers. And the prize would be a car, and they had to go put the cards in the order that they thought was the retail price of the car, pull a lever, and it would show how many were right or how many were wrong or something. They'd go back, and they'd get a couple of chances to switch them up. And they only won if what? If they got them in the right order. Now, can I tell you that this is kind of the, the plight of the average American family? And it should be different for the follower of Christ. But unfortunately, it's not all that different. Uh, in many ways, this describes kind of who we are in the church. And Paul is saying to Timothy, look, you've got to instruct people about this issue. You need to be serving God. We cannot serve both God and mammon. We've got to serve one or the other. 
So what do we do? Well, I would suggest to you that we have to know what God desires. And in this case, we find that God's desire then is for us to instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up in themselves a good foundation for the age to come so that they might take hold of life that is real. Wow, life that is real. See, Jesus said when, in John 10, 10, he said that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. It's very interesting. That does not mean what some have interpreted that to mean, that I'll get a nicer car, newer car, bigger house, better boat, all those things. Jesus said, I came to give you life that was real, life that was uh, meaningful, life that had purpose for your existence. And he says to these people that when we make a change, when we make a transition of how we were doing things to how we need to be doing things, that what we're doing is taking hold of the life that God's already provided for us, but we need to begin to give, to live that life that is real. So how do we begin to do something different? Well, in the same way that I said about weight loss just a moment ago, there were some things that I needed to learn. There were some things that I realized that I could begin doing that over time would have a cumulative positive effect in my life physically. But if I continued to work out and then go to a fast food restaurant and eat twice the calories of what I had just burned, totally clueless to that, but that's what I was doing, I was never going to make progress. So I had to make some adjustments. And in the same way, we need to make adjustments in our lives as well. Jesus had this amazing way of teaching that was upside down, inside out kind of thinking. Do you remember what he said about hating people? He said, don't hate your enemies, what should you do? You gotta love your enemies, okay? He said, if you wanna be great, don't be lording it over people and bragging about who you are. He said, what did he say? Serve. And in much that same way, true to his character, God is different from us. His thoughts are different than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. And as followers of Christ, we need to be looking to God's word for instruction on how we should live. I'm going to give you a different way of doing this. It's the same four things. It's the exact same four things. But just like Jesus, we need to invert those. What if we did this? What if we started with prayer? Well, why would I start with prayer? Well, what do you do when you get a Christmas gift from someone? Usually you thank them. Yeah, usually express thanks to them for a gift. We can begin our day with praying. Or when we receive our paycheck, we need to stop and pause and give thanks to God. I know we don't get paychecks anymore, really. They just electronically deposit into your bank, all those kinds of things. But you know when it happens, okay? And we need to stop and thank God for our work, for the opportunity to earn a living, for the ability to be able to provide for our family. And when we do this, it's also an opportunity for us to come to the Lord and say to him, God, this came from you, and this is yours. We have to develop the ability to live open-handedly. You know, it's hard to receive like this. If you do your fist like this, it's very hard to receive or to take anything. And it's also hard to give when you're like this. But when you receive things like this, they're also free to be given. And so... Our, our prayer becomes, God, this is yours. I'm yours. And this is yours to do with whatever you want. What is it, God, that you would want me to do with what you've given to me? Now, the next step then becomes for us, well, that prayer also becomes an opportunity and a way for us to acknowledge 
to the Lord that we've not done it right, uh, that we've messed up along the way, and that we've managed our money the way we thought ought to be managed. Step two in this process needs to become this issue of giving. Now, again, when we think about giving, some people are thinking, okay, God wants something from me. Well, I would say to you, God does want something from you, but what God wants from you is in Psalm 51, 17. God desires from us a broken and a contrite spirit. This recognition that I have not done it right, that I have messed up, and that I need help in getting it together and getting it in order. Now, when we get to uh, this issue of giving, some people are thinking, well, I can't do that. It's a misunderstanding. It's a great misunderstanding on our part if we think I can't give. See, this picture of giving becomes a reminder to us that it's not so much that God wants something from us, but God wants something for us. God wants you to be free to be able to be used by him to accomplish kingdom purposes. He wants you to live a life that's real life, that's full of meaning and purpose. He realizes that giving is this pathway or this antidote to greed. If we don't give, we never have enough. Listen to what the prophet Malachi says in Malachi chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. Sometimes we only read verse 10, but I want you to hear this in context. Since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you ask, how can we return? But will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. You ask, how can we rob you? By not making payments of 10% and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full 10%. This is the Holman Christian Standard. Your translation may say, bring the full tithe, bring the tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Listen to these words. Test me. Test me in this way, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke and devour for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your ground and your vine and your field will not be barren, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. I can't make any sense of this for you, but I can tell you there are people sitting around you, all around you, that will say, he's exactly right. What he's saying is exactly right. There is a blessing attached to this. And it doesn't make any sense, but God says, look, you don't believe me? Test me. Put me to the test. Try me and see if this is not true. You give of the first fruits, don't give me the leftovers, give me first, off the top, the first 10%. You begin this practice of tithing, and I promise you there are going to be some blessings associated with that. This is not a get-rich-quick scheme. This is not a promise that you're going to have a bigger house, bigger car, better boat. None of those things are true. But I promise you that there's going to be this real life that he's talking about, and there's going to be a purpose in your living that's going to be different. But there are blessings associated with this. You see, Jesus said, even the way that we give affects what's going to happen as a response, as a result. Luke 16, Jesus said, give, and it will be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. But the next verse, you know what it says? It says, for the measure that you use to give, the same measure is going to be used to give back to you. That tells me if I give in teaspoonfuls, it's coming back in teaspoonfuls. It tells me if I give in corn scoop shovelfuls, 
it's going to come back that same way. I can't explain that to you. I can only tell you that's true. God does not desire for us to live this life of financial stress all the time. Now, again, we've done much of this to ourselves, and we need to start here and say, God, I did this to myself. I'm the one that went out and signed up for this indebtedness. I'm the one that went out and obligated myself to something because I thought I needed this. I thought I deserved this. I thought I wanted this. My friend had one. I needed one. I don't know why. But you see, Jesus comes to be able to satisfy our soul. Life is not found in the abundance of things, Jesus said. You've heard it said that he who dies with the most toys wins. That's not true. He who dies with the most toys is dead. Okay? Paul said it in here. Look what he said. Go back to verse, uh, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. You see, Paul gives us this very narrow definition of satisfaction here. That really what we need are the things that sustain life. And if we have those things, we need to count ourselves as blessed. Again, God's not against our stuff, but he's saying that this helps us be able to put things in the right order. This begins to be the process for us to acknowledge, God, this is yours, and I'm trusting you for my needs. Can I tell you something else that you'll find to be true in this journey? Is that you will do far better with 90% with God's help than you will with 100% of your own money. Again, some of you are doing this. You know why you're doing this? Because you already know this is true. But I promise you, there's some people around you that are thinking, that's nuts. I'm not doing that for anything in the world. Are you kidding me? This is my money. I got to hold on to it. Let me just tell you, God has a better way for us to live. After we give, what do we do next? Well, I think we need to save. Now, there are two ways that we need to save. One, we need to have this characteristic that we find in the fruit of the Spirit. There's this little two-word uh, description at the end of the fruit of the Spirit that says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Delayed gratification. I mean, we live in a culture that says you can have it all now. You don't have to make payments until 2025 or whatever, okay? You know, and by the time you get there, you won't even know where the stuff is. It'll be in your garage already given to Salvation Army or CHKD. I mean, it will already, and we'll still have to pay for it with interest, okay? So live in such a way that when you look down the road and see what's coming, make preparation for it, okay? Save up. And you know, when you can afford something is when you can pay for it, when you can go and pay for it. Do you know how much a $5,000 car costs if you go and pay cash for a $5,000 car? $5,000, maybe a little better. You might be able to get a better deal, okay? Do you know how much a $5,000 car costs if you finance it? A lot more than $5,000, I don't know, depending on the interest rate, but it can be a lot of money, okay? So what I'm telling you is that you can look down the road and see things that are coming and make plans. I imagine last week or this week, many people were shocked as they opened their mail. You know why? It's January. People got credit card bills in the mail and said, oh my goodness, gee, what did I do last month? I'll give you a heads up, Christmas is coming in 11 months, okay? So... <laughs> You can start saving now and pay for Christmas, okay? Don't, don't, don't finance it and hope you're going to be able to you know, pay for it later, okay? But saving, but really more than that, look at what the text says. He says that in our generosity and our giving and our serving the Lord, what do we do? We are storing up for ourselves treasures 
for the day to come. He's talking about heaven. Jesus said the same thing. Don't store up yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust corrupts and thieves break in and steal. He said instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Part of this storing up is recognizing that we can invest uh, in, in a kingdom account as well. If I ask you today how much is in your bank account, I wouldn't be thinking about how much is in Town Bank or how much is in uh, Bank of America. How much is in your heavenly bank account? What have you already sent ahead? How have you invested in kingdom purposes? And then the last thing that we do is, is spend. Then we put our spending last. Now, in the order I had them before, first place was me paying down my debt was... America paying my taxes was me paying for my stuff. And then saving was for who? For me. And then giving is for others and, and God and then prayer for God. Okay? And that puts God in way down there in last place, doesn't it? I'm not thinking that's a great idea. So I'm thinking we do it the other way around. We begin with God, thanking him for what we have. We begin giving to God in worship to him, in gratitude for what he's entrusted to us, then we save, then we decide how much am I going to live on? What percentage of my income am I going to live on? And again, you may be thinking, well, I'm going to end up with less. I would challenge that. I'm betting if you go down this road, you're going to find out that you're going to end up much, much, much better off. You know, when I, when I started with Weight Watchers, and I realized that one of the things I needed to do was to keep an account of what I was actually eating. That's powerful. Let me just tell you. Do the same thing with your money. You write down what you spend, you will be a much better uh, steward of what you've got. Now, before, I would like, eat whatever, you know, whatever somebody had out or whatever was on the table or whatever was out on the counter. It just didn't matter. Just, just eat something, okay? And I had no idea. I couldn't have told you what all I was consuming. I needed to keep an account of that. We need to keep an account of our spending. Well, now, instead, I have to decide kind of in advance what I'm going to do for the day. This is a picture of you telling your money what to do rather than your money telling you what to do. You recognize that money makes a great servant. It makes a terrible, terrible master. You don't really want to be a slave to that. Allow God to turn things around in your life. Just ask God, is this true? That's what your word says. I need to put some things in the right order in my life. This only works when they get in the right order. Now about that spending thing, if you've obligated yourself to debt, you need to get yourself out of it. I mean, you need, you, you're obligated to spend that. You have committed to someone you're going to pay for this. You need to do that. But I would rather be on this end asking God to help you do this and this, and he will help you get that under control. I promise you. It's true. We all need disciplines, habits in our lives that will help us. Today, I want to challenge you in two ways. And we have to go. One way is if you're currently not doing this, you're currently not practicing giving the Lord the tithe, giving him what is already his. I want to challenge you to take a 90-day challenge. It is just about 90 days until Easter. I think it's 91 days until Easter. I want to encourage you to begin this discipline. You're saying, well, I can't do it. No, I'm, I'm asking you to just make a commitment to the Lord first. God, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to trust you to help me get this in control for 90 days. I want you to keep a journal. And I want you to send me an email after Easter with just a short story of what God did. Because, see, it's not going to be about what you do. You're going to see God do some things that are just really pretty incredible in your life.
Maybe you're already doing this. You're one of those people shaking your head like, you're right, I'm, I'm with you. I know what you're talking about. I want to encourage you to do this. I want to encourage you to go back to this place and just pray, ask the Lord, God, what is it you would have me do with what you've entrusted to me? Because I know that you've already experienced the blessings of God. And one of those things that we find that's interesting in the, in the Old Testament is the issue of the tithe as a foundation, but there are many other offerings that were to be given in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and so many people certainly think, well, that's Old Testament, so that's, that doesn't count anymore today. I know that. I would disagree with that from Matthew 23, 23. You need to look at that and see what it says. But the giving of the offering really is over and above. We really don't give an offering until we've already given God what is already his to begin with. But I want to encourage you, challenge you to think about legacy giving today. It's legacy giving. I was blessed to be a part and a recipient of legacy giving years ago. Senior in high school, I realized that God was calling me to ministry. I went to see my pastor, and, and he said to me, uh, which, and looking back now, it's kind of humorous, because he, the way I decided to go to college was he just told me where to go, and I said, okay. So it was great. And he, he said, you need to write Stanford University, get an application. You need to get in school and prepare for what God has in store for you. Okay. I, I grew up in a trailer, in a house trailer in South Central Tennessee, out in the middle of nowhere, 20 miles from anything called town, and had just, by, by American standards, poverty for sure, okay? And in that setting, I just kind of had no clue as to what it was going to cost to go to school. And I asked him about that one day, and he said, look, if God wants you to be there, he'll provide a way. Okay. Signed up and headed off to school. Little did I know, there was a lady by the name of Maddie Kaufman, <clears throat> I never met. She had already passed on before I was in this church. See, she had a kingdom perspective. She looked down the road and she saw that she wanted all that God had given her to count for something of eternal value. She'd set up a scholarship fund. I ended up receiving what I needed. Because of a little lady who just looked down the road and said, God, I want my life to matter. I don't need any more stuff. I'm sure she left an inheritance to her grandchildren, to her children. But she also made provision for God's kingdom. And her life is still counting today. There are students in Alabama today who are preparing for vocational ministry. They're still benefiting from her gift. I tell you, we need to be kingdom-minded people and take the long look and think, is life found in the abundance of things? Do I just need some more stuff? Is that all I need? Or is the gospel getting to the ends of the earth and the planting of churches and sending missionaries around the world, does that have greater value? Maybe what I want to do with my life is find a way to set up some resources that God's entrusted to me already that could have greater value in his kingdom in the days to come. I just encourage you, challenge you today to pray about how God would allow you to be a part of legacy giving. There are a group of men here in our church who oversee a fund that is all about that. It's a planned giving society, and a planned giving group, and their, their whole ministry is in helping people 
like you and me, who would say, you know what, I want to give beyond my living years. I'll be glad to help you get connected with those folks who have interest in that. We'll help you do that. And it may not even be here. I'm asking you to ask God. It's yours. What do you want to do with it? God, I got plenty of stuff. I got clothes to wear. I got food in my pantry at the house. I got a car, two, three cars in my driveway, whatever. What do you want to do with all this stuff, God? I want to invite you today, just like Paul said to Timothy, look, tell those that are rich, you need to be rich in good deeds. Be generous with what you have. And in so doing, take hold of real life. Don't waste your time in this stress of figuring out, how am I going to pay all these bills and pay for all this stuff that I've obligated myself to that I don't even need? Give generously. And last, maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. You've never trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. And you're like, what in the world is all of this about? I'll tell you, this is part of abundant living. But you'll never know abundant life apart from Christ. And really, it's a, Jesus Christ is a picture of God's being the greatest giver of all. You see, none of us would have anything that we have. None of this would ever be possible, this kind of life, if it weren't for Christ. Today, I implore you to examine first what Christ would make a difference in your life, how he would make a difference for you.